We're now returning to Mark's gospel after putting it down for some time. Uh, we're going through the gospel of Mark in four parts. And so we did part one in the fall, and now we're starting part two. And if you're wanting a refresher in part one, all of those sermons are available online, and so I encourage you to go listen to them. In part two, over the next 13 weeks, we're going to go through Mark chapter four, all the way through Mark chapter eight. Uh, and for us to meaningfully uh, dig into chapter 4 today, I think we need to do a refresher, a, a recap of where we've been so far. We decided to work through the Gospel of Mark because we want to consider the question, who is Jesus? Because it's a question that people have been asking for millennia. It's a question that people still ask today. It's a question that has not ceased to be on the hearts and minds of millions of people throughout the world and throughout history. And lots of answers have been given. He's a teacher. He's a religious leader. He's a deluded prophet. He is an exaggeration of the disciples' imaginations. But often, these sorts of answers show that we're defining Jesus on our own terms rather than letting him define himself on his own terms. Mark's gospel is an, a, is an opportunity to encounter the real Jesus, what he really said and what he really did. And Mark gives a distinct answer that stands out. He says, Jesus is the Son of God. We get that in Mark 1.1. As readers, we have the inside scoop that people within the unfolding narrative do not understand. And here's a few things we've learned about Jesus so far. Jesus came to preach. He preaches about the kingdom of God. And when he does, we get tastes and glimpses of what this kingdom is like. The expectations of God's people are blown away. Bodies are healed. Lives are restored and made whole. Sins are forgiven. And Jesus, he's fulfilling God's promises in all of his preaching and actions. And he demonstrates this uncommon authority that blows people away. But as people encounter his authority, his ability to do these things, opposition begins to build because he's disrupting the status quo. And so at this point in the narrative, the opposition has been growing and growing into flat-out rejection. And now a group of religious leaders are plotting his demise. So preaching, authority, Opposition, these are three major themes that have emerged in Mark's gospel so far. And in chapter 3, we saw that Jesus appointed 12 apostles. And Mark wrote that he, he appointed them that they might be with him to send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. In other words, the apostles, they're called to be sent, just like we are. They're called to be with Jesus, and they're also sent out into the world to be an extension of his work. But before they're sent out formally, they return home. And it seems a little anticlimactic. This was the last sermon we looked at in Mark. But it's not. It's intentional. Everything that begins to happen between chapter 3 in Mark and chapter 6 is training ground for the 12. They're learning what it means to be called to be with Jesus. They're learning what it means to eventually be sent out after being with Jesus. They're learning that they're calling uh, isn't out there, but actually takes them deeper and deeper into their everyday lives. And the very first thing, the very first thing that happens after they're called is conflict. The Pharisees come and they accuse Jesus of being possessed by a demon. Jesus' own family comes and says, you're out of your mind. Rejection starts to boil up in the narrative. And the apostles begin to see that Part of following Jesus, part of his movement is rejection, that Jesus came and will be rejected. And if he's going to be rejected, it's foreshadowing that they will be rejected too. So that's our recap. So in our passage today, Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20, 
we encounter the first parable in the Gospel of Mark, the parable of the sower. And like all of the parables in the Gospels, it's designed to draw us in. You know, we learn something about Jesus, we learn something about ourselves, and with this parable in particular, we're supposed to read ourselves into it. But as we'll see, uh, parables aren't always easy to understand. So here's the big idea we're going to be exploring this morning. Rejecting Jesus isn't something that happens out there. It starts in our hearts. And only Jesus can tend to our hearts to make bad soil into good. So open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 4. That's page 715, Megan. Uh, And uh, it's the Bible you're giving it on your way in, or everything will be on the screen. I'm sure that was her worst nightmare. Sorry, Megan. (laughs) Chapter 4, verse 1. And he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him. So he got into the boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was behind him on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen! A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang out, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Beginning to wonder if we would really like Jesus to be our in house preacher. Jesus steps up on stage. He opens up with a, listen, listen up. And he tells a parable about some seed in the four places the seed lands. And then he ends it with, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And he sits down. We clap, right? Because it's Jesus. Uh, But it's a little mysterious. How do we know if we're hearing him rightly? How do we know if we have ears to hear? Look at uh, verses 10 through 13. When he was alone with those around him, with the twelve, they asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. He said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all of the parables? I love that the 12 waited until they were alone to ask Jesus. I like to imagine them in the crowd nodding like they understand, feigning complete like they they just get it. They have no clue what's going on. Like, James, James, do you understand this? Peter, shut up. (laughs) Jesus is talking. They all shrug, but to their credit, they do ask Jesus, what's this parable all about? Tell us. And again, Jesus emphasizes the need to hear, to listen. He quotes the prophet Isaiah. He says, They may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And are we just nodding our heads in agreement? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Are we feigning understanding? Uh, This is a, a parable about seeing but not seeing, hearing but not hearing. And in the Hebrew world, Hearing wasn't just about comprehension. 
It's not being able to recite something that was said. If you really heard something, you digested the content and then lived in light of it. So when Isaiah originally prophesied to Israel, he was saying, you've seen so much of God, Israel. But you live as if you've seen nothing at all. You've heard so much of God, Israel. And you've heard about his ways, and yet you live as if you've never heard about it at all. Jesus says, listen up. Hear me. But don't just see it. Really perceive it. Don't just hear it. Really understand it. Digest it. Take it deep into the center of who you are and live in light of it. Jesus is asking, do you really want to hear me? And the twelve say, yes, we do. Tell us. Explain it to us. And so Jesus says, okay, to you is given the secrets of the kingdom. Let's break it down. The sower is Jesus. In verse 14, he says, uh, he sowed the word. The, the seed then is his message. So the sower is, is Christ. The seed is his message of the kingdom of God, the gospel. And there's four ways of hearing it. And Jesus, he knows that the proclamation of the kingdom isn't always well received. And he's preparing the 12 for this reality. But more so, he's challenging them to take inventory of their own hearts. It's like the game of telephone. It starts with no distortion. You get a message. It could be a phrase. You know, Roger is a charming southern gentleman. And if I whispered it in your ear and, and it went on all the way to the back of the room, by the time it got there, it'd be something like, uh, Roger is an alarming soccer gurney man, uh, which is also true. But uh, in good fun, we might distort the message uh, uh, in the game of telephone. This parable, however, shows us more seriously the ways we flat out refuse to hear or only partially hear the message of the gospel. And over time, the message gets so distorted that it just becomes background noise. We hear, but not really. Our hearts, they reject the seed. And Jesus, he wants us to address this within ourselves. And he's challenging the 12, he's challenging us to ask, where do we fit in this story? There's three locations. Along the path, rocky ground, or among the thorns. Where are we? And each is a unique way of hearing but not responding fully to the gospel. And there's nothing comfortable about asking where we fit in. First, do we hear the gospel along the path? Are we along the path? Jesus says in verse 15, these are the ones along the path where the word is sown when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. You might hear sermons. You may hear the message of the gospel, but you don't take the time to consider it. You're actually thinking about where you're going to go for lunch right now or about your grocery list or you're thinking about what you'll do tonight and you're just realizing that I'm talking about you now. You're wondering what I said before. Like, you're not really listening and digesting the gospel and as a result, the gospel takes no depth in you. It remains on the exterior of your life. It's sort of like walking past a bakery and, and window shopping and seeing this beautiful cake and just... Keep on walking. Now, I can commend your self-control, but you're missing it. And, and Jesus says when we do this, when we treat the gospel this way, Satan comes and snatches it away from us. Nah, you say, come on. We're modern people here. Can't actually believe in, in Satan, you know, a great spiritual foe. I must quote the usual suspects. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he did not exist. The most dangerous enemy you have is the enemy you don't realize you have. 
Satan means accuser. And when he snatches the gospel from people, he does it with quiet accusations. That's what I see most commonly in our culture. You hear things like, you don't believe this, do you? It's nonsense. It's not scientific. It's not cool. You'll lose your credibility. You'll lose friends and, and family. It's not worth it. You don't even take the time to examine these accusations or to see if the gospel is credible because immediately the accusations sink into your heart. And so the gospel bounces off of you and Satan snatches it away. Second, when we hear the gospel, are we rocky ground? Jesus says in verse 5, Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up. Since it had no depth of soil, and, and when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. And in verse 16, he explains it. He says, these are the ones sown on the rocky ground. The one who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. You hear the gospel. It takes a hold of your life, but it doesn't gain depth. It's like going into the bakery, buying the cake, but not eating it. It didn't remain outside of you, but it didn't take root within you either. It didn't get into the depths of who you are. And how do you know if this is you? Eventually, you realize that following Jesus costs too much. Jesus says when tribulation or persecution arises on account of, of the word, you fall away. Now, your life in this culture might not be literally on the line, but you can feel like it is. You especially feel this way when Jesus puts you at odds with culture. You don't want to follow Jesus in such a way as to face ridicule or scrutiny. Instead, you bow to the cultural pressure to keep your faith to yourself. You don't speak up when you know you should. You don't share your faith even when you know you have an opportunity in front of you. But what you don't see is that slowly and surely you're falling away because following Jesus is not a tameable passion. He can't be compartmentalized. You can't just follow him sometimes in some areas. And following him will put us at odds with the world. So over time, we fall away. We lose interest because we don't want to endure. And so instead, we reject the gospel and we settle for the Western dream of a safe, easy, and comfortable life. Or when we hear the gospel, are we among the thorns? Are we among the thorns? Jesus says in verse 18 and 19, And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. How can you not identify with this section? The cares of the world. It could be uh, translated, the worries of the world. How will I stay entertained? When's the next show, the next buzz, uh, the next one-night stand? Uh, where will I vacation next? What will I do after my degree? Will I ever have meaningful work? Will, I, will my health ever turn around? Will I ever find love? Will I always be alone? These are the sort of cares of the world that get into our hearts frequently, and we start asking, do I have enough? Will I ever have enough? Which is why Jesus also warns us of the deceitfulness of riches. I'll have enough when there's enough money in my bank account, enough in my savings, enough in my investments, enough in my RESPs, enough in my, enough in my RRSPs. And when there's enough, then I'll be okay. 
You see, that's the deceitfulness of money is that it promises you a false security. And you believe that if you have more and more and eventually enough, it'll also bring contentment. But that's the deceitfulness of riches. And these things, they end up taking the center of our hearts more than Jesus, and so they end up choking out the gospel. And our lives, Jesus says, prove unfruitful. We're trees dead at the root, producing rotten fruit because there's other cares that frankly take our attention more than the beauty of Jesus. This is a sobering parable. We see, but we don't perceive. We hear, but we don't understand. And no one is exempt. Even the 12, Jesus, he's handing them the secrets of the kingdom, and yet from here out, passage after passage after passage, they don't get it. They don't understand who he is. And what's even more sobering is that each of these three ways of hearing can have the form of religion and spirituality. In any of these examples, you're open to faith and spiritual things. You at least put yourself in the right situations. You may attend church once in a while or frequently. You listen to sermons. You might read books. You might even try spiritual practices from time to time or kept disciplines regularly. And for seasons, you've seen signs of spiritual growth. But it's all your own effort. On our own, this parable says we'll either, uh, we don't grow at all, we stay stagnant or we'll spring up and die. It's mechanical growth. Let me put it this way. You can start stacking bricks. And you can add more and more and more bricks. And you can aim to build a wall or a castle or a tower. You can imagine it and you can make it bigger and bigger. And yes, you're seeing some growth, but it's all mechanical. This isn't the sort of growth that comes from the gospel being planted in the depths of who you are. It's mechanical growth out of your own efforts, and it will wear you out. You will plateau. You will be left wanting, wondering, isn't there more than this? You'll frustrate easier. You'll wear out faster and faster, and you'll try more things, more books, more counseling, more sermons, you name it, but see no meaningful results. Now, don't get me wrong. None of the things I just said are bad things. It's the approach to them that's the problem. It's the appearance of spirituality, the appearance of religion, but devoid of its power. That's the point Jesus is making. You're doing the right motions, but the gospel hasn't taken a hold of your core. Now, if you're like me, you, you see yourself in one or all three of these categories. And if you're like me, you might be feeling a little overwhelmed. You can see all the ways you've tried to force your growth as a person. And Jesus, he's showing the 12, he's showing us that rejecting him doesn't start out there. It starts right in here in our hearts. But stay with me. In the passages that follow, we see examples of good soil. And they're not the people you would expect. A demon-possessed man, a wealthy elder, and a sick outsider. Let's look at each one. They're they're in chapter 5. Jesus encounters a man possessed with demons, and he's simply called the demoniac. He has a, a legion of demons. And this passage even emphasizes that no one had the ability to help this man. He was utterly helpless. What soil would he be just looking at him? Along the path. 
Satan and his legion of demons are wreaking havoc in this man's life. Yet Jesus is capable of doing what no one else is capable of doing. He proclaims the gospel in power, and this entire man's life is transformed. He's healed. He's made whole. He becomes an ambassador of the gospel. Now, we would be tempted to write off someone like this, say, no, he's bad soil. But we see he's good soil. Then Jesus encounters Jairus. Jairus, he has it all. He's the leader of the synagogue. He's an elder. He's wealthy. He's a man of reputation. And yet, his daughter falls desperately ill. What soil could he be? Among the thorns, the cares and riches of the world. But not so. Jairus sees that he can't buy his daughter's health, that his reputation can do nothing to save her. And he comes to Jesus recognizing that his only hope is that Jesus might save his daughter. His daughter dies, and yet Jesus comes and brings her back to life. It would be easy to say, Jairus has it all. He doesn't need Jesus. And yet Jairus turns out to be good soil. Jesus, he also, along that path, encounters a woman who had been sick for 12 years. She had been hemorrhaging blood for 12 years. And again, the text emphasizes, no one could help her. She had tried everything. What could she be? The rocky ground. Life hasn't been easy. It hasn't been comfortable. She has no security. The, the worries of the world are constantly in her face. She's an outsider. She can't touch anyone. No one can help her. And yet in faith, she reaches out and touches Jesus, just the hem of his cloak, and she's healed. And she too is good soil. In all three of these encounters, we see a recipe in each of these people's lives that could make them bad soil. You can see things going in their lives that you would say, no, never. And yet all of them are good soil. So what's the ingredient? They're either powerless, humble, meek, or seeking help, dependent, or maybe even desperate. No one could help the demoniac. No one could heal Jairus' daughter. No one could heal the hemorrhaging woman. All were beyond natural help. And it's acknowledging this which makes them prime to really hear and receive the gospel. Their experience with need, with deep need, gives them ears to hear and eyes to see that nothing can help them except maybe Jesus. Nothing has worked, but maybe Jesus. Nothing has saved them, but maybe Jesus. Nothing has fulfilled, but maybe Jesus. Remember, Jesus explains this parable with the words of Isaiah. They may indeed see, but not perceive. They may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they turn and be forgiven. And all these people, in turning, they can't know for certain what's about to happen. That's where faith comes in. They turn, and suddenly they see and perceive, and suddenly they hear and understand. Salvation comes into their lives. Chaos becomes peace. Sickness becomes health. Death becomes life. And what's beautiful is how different all these stories are. It's the demons, ironically, that drives the man to Jesus and then end up getting cast out. Jairus, he runs to Jesus and says, help me, help me, help me. The hemorrhaging woman doesn't want to be seen. She tries to sneak up on Jesus. But here's the common denominator. Whatever leads them to Jesus, however they may go about it, the moment someone turns to Jesus, their lives are changed. 
They come to see he really is the Son of God. They hear the message of the gospel and they repent and they believe and their sins are forgiven and their lives are made whole and they follow Jesus. And as a result, growth. The gospel invades the reality, roots out the bad soil and begins growing and growing and growing and growing. And what Jesus is offering isn't mechanical growth, it's organic growth. Look at verse 20. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. St. Augustine said, when God is the sower and we are the ground, we are called to work to be good ground. How do we work to be good ground? Mark says we receive the word and accept it. Accept it could be translated welcome with hospitality. How do we welcome Jesus in this way? The tools God has given us to work the soil of our hearts are twofold, repentance and belief. This is what Jesus went out proclaiming. Repent and believe in the kingdom of God. Repent and believe. That is how we work the soil of our hearts. And we welcome Jesus in with hospitality, without reservation or without Limits, we allow him to reorder the furniture of our souls. And as a result, he bears fruit in our lives. An organic growth begins to happen. The growth Jesus is describing, 30, 60, 100-fold, it's supernatural. It's, un- and it's, it's just beyond what any farmer could possibly expect from all of their efforts. It's not possible for anyone to produce. It's the gift of Christ's presence. St. James puts it this way in his epistle, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Jesus implants himself into our core. He saves us, he changes us, and he bears fruit in our lives. Like gardening, you can tend to the circumstances, but the power is actually in the seed, not your effort alone. Yes, you can... Plant the seed and you have to tend the soil. You can uh, water it. You can, I don't know, shovel it. Uh, I don't know. I'm not a gardener. But uh, (laughs) shovel it. (laughs) Would you like me to help you with your garden this summer? Uh, But that's just creating the right circumstances for the power of the seed to take care of the course. Yes, you have to give it the right circumstances, but the power isn't in you giving it the right circumstances. The power is in the seed. In the same way, we need to tend to our souls with repentance and belief to give the right circumstances for the seed to organically grow through our lives. And when it does, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, we can't fathom it. This is the organic growth of the gospel. The, The fruit of the Spirit begins to bear in our lives love, Joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. And the change is sometimes immediate and sometimes it's not, but it is persistent. And it'll happen with your effort and without your effort. And it might look mechanical from the outside looking in, but it's organic from within. As Jesus shaping you and crafting you and reminding you of truth and asking you questions and challenging you and leading you and bringing you moment after moment moment into his grace and shaping you more and more into his image. The moment you come to him and ask him to do the work of caring for you, 
rooting out all the bad, you start to see him at work. And it's, it's hard to measure this growth. This is why we need a community. Because people point it out in you. I used to be the sort of person uh, who yells out of car windows. Now, I can't say what I would say, but I would say things at people. And uh, I would do this. I explained this to Julia when we were dating, because I would I'd just do it while we were driving. And uh, I'd say, you know, I love it when people yell out a car window at me. I say, thank you. I don't care what they said. It's hilarious. She's like, this is not funny. And so, <laughs> mechanically, I stop the behavior. I push it down. But sometimes it still bubbles up, the behavior. And so the other day, I'm driving away from a St. Peter's event, and, and I see one of you guys walking on the street. And I'm like, I should yell something at that person. Uh, and I roll down the window, and I don't know what I'm going to say, and so I just yell, praise Jesus! <laughs> and then I realized I yelled it at someone with social anxiety. Uh, but... There's an organic growth happening in there that even in my weakness, God bubbles out. Now, I can tell you serious story after serious story. I can tell you compliments that sometimes people have paid me with in this community I don't think I deserve. Tell us you're patient, you delegate, you empower. Like, if you could see my inner monologue, you would know that's not my reality naturally. And you know this, too, in your own life. People call something out in you that you don't see in yourself. That's the organic work and growth of Christ working in and through you. And yes, we can participate it, but even when we're blind to it, he's still at work because his promises are that good. How does he do it? How can Jesus do this in our lives? Because Jesus is also the seed. Jesus is the seed planted along the path. He's overcome Satan and withstood the temptations so that we might hear the gospel and not have it snatched away. Jesus is the seed planted in rocky ground. He was faithful and uh, persevered when we couldn't. He withstood tribulation and persecution on the cross, and he is faithful where we are faithless. Jesus is the seed planted among the thorns. He surrendered completely to the will of God and he let go of the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and he followed where we could not follow. He is the sower and he's the seed. He's the seed that was rooted out of the good soil of heaven and incarnated and came to us the bad soil so that we could turn to him. This is why St. John writes in John 12, 24, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Only Jesus has the power to take bad soil and make it good. And only Jesus can make us grow, not from our own efforts alone, but by grace. And rejecting him, it starts in our hearts. It doesn't start out there. It starts in here. But he has come to heal and forgive so that we can turn. And because he was rejected, we can be accepted by God. It doesn't matter what soil you think you might be. If you turn to Christ, he will tend to your soul and offer you the grace found only in the gospel. All you have to do is repent and believe.